Hi there, this is Joan Van Ark, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. I will welcome back eight-time Emmy Award winner Ed Asner in our second hour. Ed Asner, the actor known around the world as Lou Grant on both the Mary Tyler Moore Show and his own hour-long spin-off series, Lou Grant. The 2020 television season marks the 50th anniversary of the premiere of the Mary Tyler Moore Show and by extension, the 50th anniversary of the Lou Grant character. We will talk to Ed about both these topics and more when Ed Asner joins us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us as we begin this hour by welcoming back author, teacher, law professor, and longtime television and radio legal analyst Stan Goldman. Stan Goldman, tenured professor of criminal law and evidence law at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Stan also covered the Scott Peterson case, the O.J. Simpson case, the Michael Jackson case, the Timothy McVeigh trial, and the Clinton impeachment as on-air legal correspondent and or network sole legal editor for such networks or cable news channels as CNBC, CBS, King World, and Fox News Channel. You have also seen Stan countless times on Entertainment Tonight, Hannity, O'Reilly, and other news and entertainment outlets. Stan Goldman is also founding director of the Loyola Center for the Study of Law and Genocide. Not only that, he is the author of Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother, the remarkable story of how Stan's mother not only survived the Holocaust, but how the saving of her life ultimately led to the demise of Adolf Hitler. We'll talk about Stan's book in just a second. But first, Stan Goldman, welcome back to our program. Well, my thanks. After, after that introduction, <laughs> I'm only reminded of one sentence, and that is the story of my life tells much better than it's been lived, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things we want to talk about today is the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications that could have not only on the upcoming presidential election, but the future of our country in general. Before we start with our first question, for Stan, a preamble. We are recording this conversation on Thursday, October 8th. So it's roughly three and a half weeks before the election, and it will air the weekend of the 17th. So a lot can happen over the course of the next days. I don't want to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but there are just as many unknown unknowns as there are known unknowns. But the death of uh, Judge Ginsburg, it has there are a lot of wild cards at stake, aren't there? You know, uh, Justice Ginsburg had such an amazing life and, and accomplished so many things uh, as a lawyer, which would have been enough to make her a, a memorable, memorable figure, and then as a justice of the Supreme Court. But I am, I just hope, because I was a fan of Justice Ginsburg, I just hope that her death doesn't overshadow her accomplishments in life, because her death may set off a, a series of events that have already begun of tremendous political consequence. Uh, the idea that, as you know, uh, we're, we're probably by October 17th probably going to be having some of, the, some of the confirmation hearings, unless something interferes again, and who knows, but replacing her with someone who is going to be replaced only maybe a, a, a month or two before there might be a change of, uh, of president in a controversial setting after uh, Merrick Garland uh, was denied uh, being uh, 
in effect brought before the Senate uh, years ago when he had like eight or ten or twelve months literally before the president was going to leave office. Uh, Merrick Garland, by the way, well, you mentioned that I saw that, sat in on the McVeigh trial. I did for four and a half months. Very excellent young prosecutor handled that case, a guy named uh, Merrick Garland. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, I've watched, uh, watched Garland court, brilliant guy, and deserves to be on the court, clearly qualified. But I just worry that Ginsburg's demise has set off such a political uh, bonfire here that may continue on. If uh, Joe Biden is elected, there'll be a definite push from the progressives in the party to expand the court uh, to 11 or 13. And uh, this, this could be the beginning of, uh, of quite a bit of constitution, if not constitutional crisis, at least a lot of questioning. And by the way, just let me get this straight so that people don't misunderstand. There's nothing in the Constitution about limiting the justices to nine. It was five, it was seven, it was nine, it was ten, it was nine again. And by accident of history, in 1866, the Republicans were worried that then Andrew Johnson, the President of the United States, might very well get enough votes in the Senate during the midterms to be able to pack the court with like-minded racists, which is what Andrew Johnson was, and he a Southern senator who'd been put on the ticket by Lincoln to expand his base. And it worked. He got elected, but then he died, and Johnson became president. So they, they got through Congress a bill saying, oh, no, there can only be nine, but that just takes a majority of the House and the Senate to assuming no filibuster, and the president to sign it. So it's not written in stone. It's just a law that could be changed as any law can be changed. And we've seen in other walks of life over the past six months, uh, stand that just because tradition dictates that we do things a certain way, reality suggests that we may have to change the course of the games. Uh, and we, we've seen this in other in, in so many other professions as they've, as they've adjusted to the national lockdown and, and, and sheltering in place. So common sense would say, yes, just because tradition says there are nine, it doesn't always have to be nine. And by the way, there were nine that were set in 1866. <laughs> I want to hazard a guess on the number of cases reaching the U.S. Supreme Court <laughs> in 1866 compared to the year 2020. Uh, you could have 21 justices on the court, and you still wouldn't have enough justices to handle all the work that the court perhaps should be considering. It's, uh, they've really restricted themselves in their ability to take cases because they, they can only overwork their clerks so much in terms of putting the work together. Stan Goldman is on the line with us. Stan Goldman, Loyola Law School law professor, longtime contributor to Fox News Channel, CNBC, CBS Radio, and other national media outlets. Stan is uh, helping us discuss uh, uh, some of the various issues following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill Ginsburg's seat, and the implications that could have both on the 2020 election and the cultural landscape of the United States in years to come. Tony and Don, you want to jump in? Well, first of all, let me get, I wanted to stress, I've learned more about how the Supreme Court works since Justice Ginsburg's passing than I think I ever had before, that I can recall from a history class, a social studies class, a civics class, or anything like that. I think most of it is because of you, Stan. But I think the country is on this learning curve that you know, we're trying to figure. Oh, this is how the thing works, and you're just saying you're you have established that this is tradition. Tradition has absolutely no sort of legal standing then, just like it's tradition that 
during an election year, we do not put in a new judge. Time right. where, yeah, so this is, I mean, to me, that is amazing because, like I said, I, I think I've learned more in the last Well, I, I mean, it, it is technically a law. It's just a law that was passed by Congress 150-plus years ago, and, you know, it, it could be changed. So many laws that are older changed. It, it doesn't require a supermajority. I suspect the Democrats would find themselves confronted by some sort of, if they were able to bring this up, would be confronted by some sort of filibuster uh, by the Republicans. If the Democrats had enough votes to pass it, uh, absent filibuster, that would, that would be one thing, but then they might have to get around a filibuster, and I suspect what they like to call the nuclear option may be used, which would be that the, a majority of, of uh, 51 votes in the Senate can change uh, the filibuster rules, uh, which require 60 votes. So it's kind of a strange thing where the filibuster rule requires 60 votes, but that rule itself could be changed by a vote of 51, you know, 50 plus the vice president, for example. So, yes, it is, it is not emblazoned in the Constitution uh, like the three branches of government. It is a decision that was made in a political, uh, very, very uh, active, uh, antagonistic time, and uh, might very well be changed in such a time. I mean, obviously, Roosevelt tried to do it, and, and the Democrats backed away from it, but Roosevelt was in a very different position when he tried to add a couple of justices to the court because the Supreme Court back in the mid-1930s was declaring sort of the way we think perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court may declare Obamacare uh, unconstitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court back in the mid-1930s was declaring a lot of the work programs that Roosevelt was trying to create around the country to get us out of depression. They declared that unconstitutional. But the justices were older then, and within a couple of years, two of the more conservative justices who opposed his policy retired, and therefore he didn't have any more trouble from his point of view with the court. That's not going to happen here. People are living longer, and these justices who make up the conservative majority as opposed to the liberals who are getting old, uh, the conservative majority are not old by U.S. Supreme Court standards. Just, I'm thinking as I'm listening to uh, you talk, it seems to me that the biggest pushback might be from the public, because just observation on my part, Americans don't like change. That's something. But that has nothing to do with anything. Are there pros and cons of expanding? Uh, I mean, if it were to happen, I mean, would some people argue that expanding the court would allow for a court with, that would better reflect America in the 21st century? Perhaps, I, I, you know, if I were a political advisor to Biden, which I'm, I'm not, and I doubt if he'd hire anybody who's, who gets a pension check like I do from the Fox News channel. <laughs> I spent more than 10 years, you know, full-time as, as the network's first legal correspondent yeah. uh, until Roger Ailes and I had a parting of the ways after a little over 10 years. But if I did have his ear, I would suggest, look, here's a safe thing to do. Here's something that might not ruffle feathers. Add two justices and make one of them Merritt Garland, and the other one make, make it a, a, a diversity choice, but make one of them Merritt Garland, and the public who thinks that, apparently a majority of the public think that Garland was denied a legitimate seat on the court, and especially with the addition of this new judge, and all two justices would do would be return the court to exactly what it was just before Ginsburg passed away, which is six Republicans and five Democrats, meaning a majority of Republicans, with returning Roberts again to the swing vote. Now, Roberts is very conservative, but he's not quite as conservative as his fellows on the court 
who are also Republican appointees. So you really have changed nothing except bring us back to the status quo ante here. That might be a way of pacifying any public objection, certainly from the middle, uh, not from the right, who would be terribly upset, but from the middle and, and the left uh, would probably feel that that was appropriate. And the Democrats are feeling that two seats have been stolen from them, basically? Just yes, and I have conservative Republicans. Look, I'm not a conservative Republican. But I have, I have lots of friends who are, you know, and uh, even they think that the seats have been stolen. And, uh, you know, people who, were, who would never voted for a Democrat in their life think that uh, especially the Merrick Garland seat was stolen from the Democrats and, and that uh, this addition just adds salt on the wound. So I don't know how much there'd be a rebellion. I, admittedly, if, if Biden tries to appoint four justices to the court to give it a definite liberal uh, majority, which a lot of my friends would also love uh, on the other side of the political scales, that might have more of a, an effect on public opinion, I suspect. But on the other hand, what, Biden's 77. Is he going to run for a second term? He may not care what the public thinks about him. He'll, he'll just do what he feels he, he has to do and then leave it uh, for somebody else to, you know, to run in his place in 2024. Stan Goldman is on the line with us. Stan Goldman, tenured law professor at Loyola Law School. Stan is helping us uh, sift through some of the various issues uh, following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications that could have on both the 2020 election and the cultural landscape of the United States in the years to come. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Stan is also the author of Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, the Bargain that Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother, which is available in uh, hardcover, soft cover, also as an audiobook. The hardcover is available through Potomac Book. The audiobook, I think, is available through recorded books. All of all forms are available through Amazon.com and wherever fine books are sold. A reminder, we're having this conversation with Stan on Thursday, October 8th, so about eight days before this program airs. So there are, there are still a lot of moving parts in yeah place. But uh, as it happens, last night as we record this conversation was the vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. And what was interesting, I was not aware of this, uh, Senator Harris brought up a position that uh, President Lincoln had in, in 1864 when we had a similar situation facing us right now, Stan, which is a vacancy in the Supreme Court. Uh, Republicans controlled both the White House and had a majority in the Senate. But Lincoln felt that we, we should let the election play out first before filling that seat. Yeah, I mean, the, the politicalization of the court uh, until the 68 election were, was really uh, rare. It only occurred during very significant political upheaval times. The, the Civil War, as I said, dealing with Lincoln and then his successor, Andrew Johnson. Uh, secondly, during the Depression and Roosevelt. But for the most part, the, the court has sort of been un, unpoliticized to a large extent. It was never really a political issue. And it worked. Uh, Richard Nixon used the court, the Warren Court's uh, expansion of the rights of criminal defendants saying that this, you know, this court was soft on crime and we had to get, we got to get tough on crime. And he basically ran in 68, if anybody was around to remember that or has read about it, he ran in large part against Miranda, not the person, but the case. Yeah. 
He ran against the U.S. Supreme Court requiring all these niceties about how they treat criminal defendants, and he thought that, no, 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 we need to get tough on crime, and it seemed to work, and when he appointed justice to the court, and he got in his five years a chance to appoint four, uh, unusual, he tried to appoint uh, very conservative justices who would be tough on law and order, and he did, and it did, it shifted the court for, until this very day in many ways. And by the way, when uh, LBJ tried to fill a position left by Earl Warren uh, in his last uh, months as president, uh, he was blocked from doing it. He wasn't able to fill that position during that period of time. So there is some some precedent for presidents not nominating people to the court and getting them on the court in the last few months. That's uh, that's absolutely true. But uh, you know, and this this is much closer. This is just even much closer to the election than that was. But yeah, it's it's only been in recent times. In fact, Eisenhower. If you look at Eisenhower and Truman's appointments to the court, these were not necessarily political appointments of somebody with a particular ideology. I mean, Eisenhower appointed Brennan, who was considered the most liberal member of the court. Uh, Kennedy appointed Justice White, who was clearly typically a conservative member of the court. It wasn't really until, as I said, uh, Nixon sort of made it a political issue that it became kind of a hot potato uh, and issues would arise as to particular cases being decided by the court. You mentioned that uh, Chief Justice Roberts is a moderate conservative compared to some of the other conservative justices on the court. And again, there are too many moving parts in play that we both that we know about and that we don't know about over the next 26 days as we record this conversation. (laughs) But the the implication is if the seat is filled and we end up with a 6-3 majority, the implication, according to the current occupant of the White House, is that the, the election is going to be contested. But that's assuming that all of his appointees are going to vote for him. And going back to Judge Roberts, he's, you know, he's not only said in general, he has said in response to the current president that the Supreme Court is the equivalent of an umpire in a sports game. And there are no such thing as Democratic judges or Republican judges. They're, they're arbiters. And so the assumption is that the 6-3 majority would rule for the president. But again, we don't know that. Well, the only example we have was, of course, exactly 20 years ago, Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that case, uh, there was a recount going on uh, in Florida. And the Florida Supreme Court, uh, people forget, in a 4-3 to three vote, ruled that the recount should continue. And I had this battle with Britt Hume when I was on the Fox News Channel, and I was, I was covering the election's legal aspects, that the Republicans had filed a lawsuit in the federal court to stop the count, but the Republicans had won an intermediate court of appeal decision in Florida saying, yes, yes, the account should be stopped. And Britt Hume and I literally got in a, a heated argument on TV, on live TV. He said that his information was the Republicans were now going to drop their federal lawsuit, which they'd filed to stop the recount. And I said, well, that would be silly, a word I think that Hume didn't care for. <laughs> that would be silly because you don't know if the Florida Supreme Court might overturn the Court of Appeal. Yeah. And if so, then, they, then it would, the option would exist to get the case into the U.S. Supreme Court for the Republicans. So they're not going to drop it. And actually, during the break, uh, Britt actually uh, called me an obscene word. I'm not entirely certain I should use on your channel uh, for that stupidity. No, we are an an FCC-friendly program. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So that uh, three days later, 
the state Supreme Court of Florida did reverse and a four to three vote to allow the count to continue. And then the U.S. Supreme Court basically grabbed the case and in a five to four vote concluded that they had to stop the recount. And one of those justices who clearly was a moderate conservative, O'Connor, Justice O'Connor, uh, the first woman to sit on the court, she voted with the majority of five to stop the count. That was a five to four decision. And uh, she, according to interviews later in her life, or at least report interviews, uh, years later regretted that decision and said that that was a mistake. They should have never intervened. But there was a lot of pressure on the court. She was very close with Justice Rehnquist. They had been very close even in law school. Uh, you know, they'd gone to Stanford together. There were reports that he'd even dated briefly when they were in school together. Uh, and uh, I was present, uh, a case I had in the U.S. Supreme Court some years ago, when Rehnquist and O'Connor were still on the court, I remember sitting there waiting to come on. I was uh, There's an on-deck table in the Supreme Court. If you're due to argue next, you sit at this table. And the people who are arguing the case that's being argued right then and there sit closer to the court. So I was in the on-deck table, and, uh, and O'Connor was having trouble with, perhaps it was Parkinson's, we're not certain. She, it was taking her a long time to get her questions out, and, and Justice Scalia was very inflamed by this. He wanted to get his questions out. Uh, very loudly, I may add. And at one point, O'Connor got a question out, and before before a second passed, before anybody could possibly think of answering, Scalia jumped in with a question. And Rehnquist just said something that apparently I've I've never found anybody else uh, they've ever heard in the court. He just looked straight forward and said, stop the clock. And then he paused, looking straight forward, and said, I trust no justice on this court is under the misapprehension that the answers to their questions are of any greater value than the answers to any other justice's questions pause, start the clock. So Rehnquist was very, I I can't say, I I think the word might even be protective of O'Connor. And uh, apparently she was greatly influenced by, by, you know, his insistence that they stop the count in Florida. And years later, she regretted it. So you never quite know what's going to happen. I just think uh, we don't know. By the way, the four dissenters were liberals on the court, but two of them were appointed by Republicans, and only two were appointed by Democrats. But as I said back for periods of time, was not all that uncommon for justices to shift their opinions once they got on the court or not be that adamantly liberal or conservative when they were originally appointed. Our guest this hour is Stan Goldman. Stan Goldman, tenured law professor at Loyola Law School and longtime legal analyst for Fox News Channel, CNBC, CBS Radio, and other national media outlets. Stan is helping us decipher some of the many issues at play following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications that can have on both the 2020 election and the cultural landscape of the United States. We'll talk some more with Stan Goldman when we come back on TV Confidential. Attention, this important consumer alert is brought to you by the Structured Settlement Cash Hotline. Did you know it's possible to receive upfront money in one large payment from your structured settlement? Yes, you can. If you're receiving a structured settlement spread out over time and you want to access your money today, call us. It's your future cash. Why not put it in your hands today? Don't wait any longer. This is the best solution if you need money to pay your bills or even help a family member who's been affected during this global time of crisis. Everyone needs a little money right now, and our hotline is here for you. If you have a structured settlement where you're getting money spread out over time and you want it faster, call now. This simple 10-minute call can get your money now. The call is free 
and it costs you nothing. 800-965-7987. 800-965-7987. 800-965-7987. That's 800-965-7987. Story Salon is Los Angeles's longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio, Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive, preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.